You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Thank you, Pastor Derek. <clears throat> Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis. I'm thrilled that you're here. Uh, it's good to be with you today. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1 if you haven't already done so. Mark chapter 1. And if you don't have one of these field journals, uh, there's some on the back table here uh, at the entry of the room. Uh, it's a, a copy of the Gospel of St. Mark on one side and then note-taking pages on the other. It's free uh, so long as you take a rubber band with you. Uh, otherwise, you've got to pay for it. Uh, so there's rubber bands back. Just kidding. Uh, there's rubber bands back there. There's journals back there. Uh, free for you. Uh, go ahead and hop up right now and get it and follow along with us. We've dedicated ourselves to this book, and we'll be here for a couple years. So get this, get comfy, and uh, we're going to go uh, get to work in this text. Before we do, and as you prepare for our time in the Word today, I'd like to present a gift to those who were recently baptized. We gave some of these away in the first service, and now this service we have uh, Mr. Darius Kennedy and Miss Elsie Rose. If y'all would come down real quick. Um, we've got a gift for y'all. They were baptized a few weeks ago. Um, we have these, uh, proud of y'all. This is fun. We have these bottles to give you. Stay up here because I want to pray for y'all. Um, but what we do here at the Axis is we uh, take water uh, from, from the baptistry at the horse trough <laughs> that we have after they're baptized and we save some water and we put it in glass bottles and uh, cork it, seal it with like a maker's mark wax type of thing and um, give one away with their name on it and date of their baptism. We also keep one, and they're on the shelves out on the, this side entrance lobby that you can see every person who's been baptized at the Axis, their bottle is there with the name and date. So these are for y'all to keep. Um, they're sort of symbolic uh, pictures, um, sort of in the, you know, in the Old Testament when they walked across on dry land when God parted the waters. They were told to take uh, stones of remembrance, Ebenezer stones of remembrance, so that in the coming generations, when the children's children say, hey, what's that rock over there? You'll be able to say, that's a picture of God's faithfulness who brought us through water on dry land. He rescued us. So these are Ebenezer stones of remembrance, if you will, Ebenezer bottles, so that when your children's children, when your grandchildren, they ask you, what's that water in that bottle? You'll be able to say, God is faithful. And you'll be able to tell about when you got baptized in a horse trough. And they'll be like, man, you're old. Be like, no, it was a warehouse. We just didn't have a baptistry. <laughs> and you'll tell of God's faithfulness in your life. And this will cause you to remember. That was the whole point of, of causing you to remember. And so in a similar way, that's how we do communion. And the Lord's Supper is it causes us to remember back of God's faithfulness through Christ. This is God's faithfulness to you guys and how he saved you and changed you. Let me pray for you all. Proud of you all. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for these my friends, this my daughter. Um, Lord, I, th I thank you for your faithfulness in their life, in their story. Thank you for the joy it is to watch them follow you, to become more like you. Lord, thank you for saving them. Thank you for changing them. Continue this work, I pray. Use them mightily. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray and thank you. Amen. Amen. Proud of y'all. Love y'all. Yeah, man. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, today is week three in our study through the gospel of, of Mark, a series that we've entitled Seeing, Believing, and Following the Messiah. 
Uh, We've given ourselves to the gospel of St. Mark for us to see Jesus, believe Jesus more, and follow Jesus more closely. So as a way of reminder of how we get this book, how it comes to us, is it was written by a a guy named Mark, or often in the New Testament epistles and uh, referred to like in Acts as well as John Mark. Uh, Mark grew up uh, in in a fairly large home. In, in downtown Jerusalem, where uh, his parents hosted one of the very first church gatherings in the Christian church, um, sort of like one of the first church plants ever was in his home. So he kind of grew up in a church planter's home, more or less. Uh, Mark wasn't one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, though he's often mistaken as one of the OGs. He didn't, he wasn't one, but he spent a lot of time with some of those original disciples, significant amount of time, like with Peter. Spent a lot of time with Peter. He spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. He spent a lot of time with the encourager Barnabas. And he spent a lot of time with young Timothy. And it's obvious through, through his gospel account that he took the, the scroll of Isaiah and held it very near to his heart because a lot of Isaiah in the Old Testament is woven through his narrative account. And Mark is believed to be the earliest of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His is believed to be the oldest, and people borrowed from him to kind of trigger their memories to be able to write their own accounts. He wrote this while he was in Rome around 56 to 59, just 10 years prior to the emperor Nero coming in and just ravishing uh, Jerusalem, destroying it. Mark was written in Rome for the Romans, for the outsiders, for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles, so that they could hear about Jesus, so that they could learn about the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, to tell them that he came to save them too, to guide them to see and believe and follow Jesus. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in our introduction to this book, I mentioned that Mark writes with a heightened level of intensity, and the word immediately happens often through his book. Um, he, it's, it's, it's an intense book. It's quick. It's fast. It's a short book. It's powerful. He's like an inside linebacker, okay? Like he just comes with power from, from right out from the gates, and his, he's trying to get to the cross of Christ as quickly as possible. So he's telling you just enough about Jesus' story in order to get to the cross. The, the last half of his book is about the final week in the life of Jesus. So he was trying to get to the cross of Christ in his story as quickly as possible. And this is my hope for us here, is to have this text, let's get to the cross, let's remember Christ's work through communion, right? Then we'll sing and leave, right? But right now, let's get to the cross. So for context, here's what happens. Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's baptized by John the Baptist, not John, one of the gospel writers, John the Baptist, the the baptizer, the forerunner of Jesus, the promoter of Jesus, the one that was to be um, like Elijah, Uh, an Elijah type of of figure, pronouncing, announcing that the Messiah had shown up, right? He baptizes Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in a very unique way, preparing him for his mission towards the cross. It's there that Jesus the Messiah will suffer and die for sinners. Following this, The Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. So for context's sake, let's start in verse 9. I'm going to read through that, and then we're going to hit the ground running in verse 14 for our time for today. All right? So direct your eyes to the text. Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. That was his hometown. He was baptized by John the Baptist in the river Jordan. 
And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to Jesus. Now our text for today, starting in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching, proclaiming, heralding. This is a word borrowed from culture that Mark uses here. All right? It was to announce publicly of new law, new edict. Right? This, is, this is official language. This was To proclaim was to always speak the truth. Okay? Otherwise, you would say or you would announce. But this word is unique to this first century Jerusalem society, this culture, where this proclamation was, was proclaiming truth. Okay? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, preaching, heralding official news, the gospel of God. The good news of God. And he said this. The time is fulfilled. The time is complete. The time is finished. And the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Change your way of thinking. All the other ways you've been going, turn, direct your heart and your mind towards God. Turn from your sin. Turn towards God. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and trust in. Turn from all those other ways. Turn to the way. Turn to the truth. Turn to the life. You turn to God from your sin and you believe and you trust and you hope in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the finished work of the Messiah. Okay? Now, this is a summary statement of Mark for the rest of his book. He's going to spend the rest of our time in Mark Unpacking this very verse. Jesus enters in after the arrest of John. He preaches and proclaims the gospel of God, saying the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the rest of the book of Mark unpacks this statement from Jesus. Jesus here is announcing publicly that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's here. History has, has now been brought to its climax, and the time has now been fulfilled. The moment that all creation has been waiting for is here. And Jesus says, prepare for this coming kingdom. Prepare for this kingdom that's upon you now by repenting of your sin, turning toward Jesus Christ, and believing the gospel of God. Remember Mark 1, 1. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Jesus is born. Jesus grew up being about his father's business, he said, in the temple. And then suddenly, John the Baptist shows up, and he sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness where he's tempted and he's tried. And he comes out perfect. He resists temptation perfectly, defeating it with the truths of Scripture. Jesus exits the wilderness. He exits 40 days 
of being tempted by Satan himself, he discovers that John the Baptist had been arrested. The time is now, he says. Time is fulfilled. This hostility has begun. We've reached our tipping point. The cross is calling me. My father is directing me. Let's roll. John the Baptist, arrested. He exits the wilderness. He understands this resistance is growing. The hostility is brewing. He sees the cross in front of him. And every step from this point on is to get himself on that Roman cross where he will suffer and die for the sins of mankind. His first action after preaching repent and believe the gospel In verse 16, he calls his disciples. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, near Capernaum, he saw Simon and Andrew. They're brothers. This is also Peter, Simon Peter. Simon and Andrew, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's what fishermen did. They cast it into the sea, right? This is their trade. This was their profession. It's what they did. Jesus sees these fishermen, these two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, And he says to them, come on, follow me. Come. It's a command. Let's go. I will make you become fishers of men. I'll do the work. It's on me. You just just come on. I got it. Come on. I will make you become fishers of men. I will prepare you. I will do the work that's necessary. You just come on. And immediately, at once, they left behind their nets and they followed the Messiah. They follow Jesus. That word follow there means to obey. That word, it's not just to fall in line behind someone, but it is to, literally the phrase means to become a disciple of. They literally followed Jesus. Fishers of men. That's another way of saying uh, disciple maker. I'll make you a, a disciple maker. I'll make you a disciple who makes disciples. I will make you a fisher of men. I'll make you a disciple. Jesus says, come to me, and I will help you save men and women forever. What is a disciple? What is a a fisher of men in context that Jesus is using this strange phrase for here? It's an intentional, passionate follower of a teacher. A disciple is an intentional, passionate follower of a rabbi. That's what a disciple is. You see, a disciple or a fisher of men in this context, a disciple doesn't just want to know something. A disciple wants to know someone by nature of being a disciple. Jesus, a a Jewish rabbi, right? He was a Jewish rabbi. He was a teacher. He calls these men to come learn from him. He calls out to them to come become a disciple of himself. A disciple is someone who's consumed with the desire to be just like their rabbi. That's a disciple. Therefore, a disciple of Jesus is someone who's consumed with the desire to be just like Jesus. They're consumed with it. They wake up, they eat, they drink, they think all about how can I be more like Jesus. By definition, this is what a disciple is. These men are called to follow Jesus, and they drop everything, and they follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. These men did this. Simon and Andrew died martyrs' deaths for the sake of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ. All disciples, except Judas, who hung himself out of guilt 
and John who is exiled on the Isle of Patmos with his eyes plucked out. The exception of those two, the other ten died horrific martyrs' deaths. They followed Jesus to the very end. That's Simon and Andrew. Verse 18, verse 19. And going on a little bit farther, he sees James and John, both sons of Zebedee, who were in their boat mending the nets. They were either coming off of a, a, a shipping tour or they're about to go out on one and they're preparing things, their gear. And immediately, so he sees them and immediately, he doesn't watch them, observe them, be like, are these the kind of cats I want? No, he sees them and immediately calls out to them to follow him. And they left, it's interesting, they mentioned the father first. And they left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. They went with Jesus. Jesus calls out two more fishermen here, two sets of brothers Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Two sets of brothers. Four fishermen from a very obscure, small, little fishing town. Capernaum, which many believed used to be known as the Fishington, fishing town. And they're called to follow Jesus. And they do so. And they do it without hesitation. They immediately drop their nets. They immediately leave their dad and go and follow Jesus. Jesus goes and calls these four young men to follow him to learn from him. Come, learn from me. Come, follow me. Come and be like me. Become like me. They didn't come to Jesus first. He went to them first. And he invited them to pursue him. He first pursued them. It's important. I'll get to why in a minute. So these guys are apparently in their mid to late teen years. The disciples were all very young. Contrary to flannel graph, right, that we grew up with, some of us. They weren't old. Peter was the only one who was of age, 30 or older. The rest were, were younger in their teens. And, and you know this even by how they were working with their fathers, Ebedee, learning their father's trade. Their, their fathers were fishermen, so they were fishermen. And the dream for any father during this time here in Jerusalem is that their sons would learn under a Jewish rabbi. That's their hope. That, that was just, it couldn't get any better. If my son can learn under a Jewish rabbi, man, I'm going to be so proud. See, boys and girls, they attended school in nearby Galilee. But only gifted boys would continue their education beyond the age of 15 because it was at that age that the girls would be married. Students attended school in the synagogue, and they were taught by Hazan, or a local Torah teacher, and according to the Mishnah, which is the writings of the oral traditions in and around the time of Christ, according to the Mishnah, students began around age five or six in what is elementary school, which is called Bethsefer. This included a lot of memorizing, a lot of studying of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. At age 12, boys would study the more complicated oral traditions and interpretations of the Torah. This included a lot of question and answer scenarios between the teacher and the students, and a lot of memorization drills. At age 13, every boy that was in this class would have the first five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah, memorized, just flat out memorized. And that's why it's interesting when Jesus says, as it is written, because they would know if it was or not. Anytime he quoted the Old Testament, they would know exactly where he's referencing. They could tell you every occurrence that a, word, that a bird was mentioned in the first five books of the Old Testament. Anytime a stick was referenced, 
in the first five books of your Old Testament. I could tell you exactly where it was. I could tell you. They had it memorized. See, at age 13, these young boys became what is known as religious adults. So they had arrived, religiously speaking. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more intense. Most students would leave after Beth Sefer and go learn their father's trade and work under him. So uh, um, Andrew and not Simon, Andrew, James and John were still under Zebedee, so they were probably 13, 14 years old. Okay? So after age uh, 12 or 13, they would enter into, if they were sharp enough, if they were smart enough, if they were passionate enough, if they had enough zeal, they would be invited into Beth Sefer, right? After they left Beth Sefer, they would be invited into Beth Madrash, sorry. After Beth Sefer, they would be invited into Beth Madrash, which means house of study, or it's their secondary school, where they would continue as the gifted students learning from a rabbi. They would be the best of the best, 12 or 13-year-old boys. Now, families who had boys that were in Beth Madrash, they beamed with pride in the market. They're like, hey, isn't your son in Beth Madrash? Yeah, he is. That's my boy. He's going to be smart. You watch. You watch. He's going to be awesome. He's going to be one of the best. Yeah. This was the conversations. Beth Madrash is where the more intense process of understanding and applying the Torah took place and the oral tradition. They had to work with it, not just recite it, but they had to work with it and apply it. And so what would happen is a rabbi, the teachers, would toss out scenarios and situations. And the young students would kind of intellectually kick it around. And they wanted to see who's the sharpest of the sharp. Even in this elite class of Beth Madrash, they would want to see how are they thinking, how are they processing. Ooh, I like that he said that. Ooh, that's interesting. He referenced that. Oh, wow, look at how they're watching him. As they, he's like the leader in this room. Like they look at him as the smartest one. They're watching. They're studying. Well, after the few, the very few that made it all the way through Beth Madras, they would graduate. They, they, they were the, the truly like spectacular students. They would then find a rabbi and go follow him. They would try to find a rabbi that they admired and wanted to be like and if they had graduated from Beth Madras, if they had proven themselves, that they had passion, they had knowledge, they had desire, they would go find somebody and just start following them. It was on them. They would go ask and follow, ask and follow, ask and follow. They would be a Talmud, a disciple. They would become part of that rabbi's Talmudin, plural, for disciples. They wanted to be in that cohort, that collective. They wanted to be under a rabbi. And as a disciple, as a Talmud, their goal was to become just like their rabbi by learning and applying the wisdom of the Torah and the oral traditions to daily situations. They tried thinking just as their rabbi thought. They wanted to walk just as their rabbi walked. They wanted to notice what their rabbis noticed. They wanted to respond the way that their rabbi responded. They wanted to do what their rabbi was doing. If they were walking this way, how their arms swung, they would try to like walk this way, how their arms swung. They would look at this bird and say, hmm. They would be like, hmm. Why did you say, hmm? I don't know. He did. I'm just doing like him. Like they tried doing everything just like their rabbi. They wanted to become their rabbi. They lost, intentionally lost their own identity in order to try to become just like their rabbi. They, wanted, they were hoping with their whole life to keep it together enough to be just like this one. And then very, very few 
would go on and be a rabbi themselves and teach other people. And at any point along the way of this educational journey, but certainly by age 20, these boys would go and learn a trade, most likely the trade of their father. Then all men would enter into full ability, full manhood at age 30. So the goal of a boy was to find that rabbi that you liked and you would study under them. You would learn from them. And you would follow until he accepts you as a student. Says, I see that you have what it takes. You are now one of my Talmud. And you're like, whoa. This is the day I've been waiting for. You follow until you're accepted. You follow after you've worked so very hard. You've, you've proven your diligence. You've proven your intelligence. You've proven your study ethic. You've proven your work ethic. Your academic prowess. You follow until you're accepted or you follow until you're dismissed. Once you're accepted, your family rejoices. Your dad hold his, holds his head up high with Jewish pride. And if you're dismissed, which happened most often, your family accepted the news pretty easily. They were expecting it. Very few make it along the way. And they accept it and you go on. And then you adopt your father's career. You accept it as your own. And when you come of age, you start your own business in that career path. Here's my point. Rabbis never, ever, ever sought out students. Rabbis never, ever went and found a Talmud. They were always around them, and they selected from the ones that wanted them. Students would always seek out a rabbi and stay around and linger until they were dismissed or until they were acknowledged said, okay, you can stay. What does Jesus do here in the text in Mark chapter 1? He goes after these disciples. He goes after these young men. He seeks them out. He calls to them. If these young men are of age and fishing, what's this tell us about them? They've already been dismissed. They're not in school. They're fishing. They're back with their dad. Peter, already adopting that career as his own, is of age. He's, he's already got his own business up and running. These guys have already been told, you're not enough. They've already been told, you do not have what it takes. They've already been told, stop following me. You're not good enough. They've already been told, you're not smart enough. They've already been told, you're not quick enough. You just don't have what it takes. Go back and collect taxes like your dad. Go be a fisherman like your dad. You're, you're not who we're looking for, okay? You didn't really expect to be invited in, did you? You didn't. Surely you didn't. He didn't, right? <laughs> Go back on. They've already been told this. But Jesus, he goes to these rejects, these religious castaways, Good for nothings, forgotten ones. He says, Hey, come on, follow me. What? Is he talking? He ain't talking. I'm a fisherman. I've already been kicked out a long time ago. I'm not. He talking? Who's he? Me? Like, yeah, come on. I want you to learn from me. Come on. Tell me. Be a disciple. Come on. Of course, they immediately drop their nets. And of course, their dad, Zebedee, begins weeping. 
being like, those are my boys. Those are my boys. I bet he quickly drops his net, runs into the market, and says, y'all won't believe it. You know James and John? They ain't fishing anymore. What happened? They're with a rabbi. What? Talmud, yeah. Are you kidding? I'm not. It happened today. Go look. They're over there. What? Yeah, my boys. I told you. As a way of encouraging Jesus' disciples, fast forward with me. After his death, after his resurrection, prior to his ascension, he was telling his disciples he was leaving, but he was going to send a comforter who would be with him that was better than him in the present, referring to the Holy Spirit. And he says this as he prepares to leave them. Remember John 15, 16. He says, remember, boys, you didn't choose me. Remember? It was me. I chose you. Because he knew it was rare. The disciples knew it was rare. So he spoke this to encourage them. Be like, I know you have what it takes. I'm with you. I chose you. It's on purpose. When Jesus calls out to these guys, they leave their nets and they follow him. They leave their father. They leave their team, their business, and they follow him. This is the nature of true, authentic discipleship. These religious rejects, these fishermen, they become disciples of the Messiah, not just regular disciples of a regular rabbi. They become the disciples, the Talmud, the Talmudin of the greatest rabbi of all rabbis, the greatest teacher of all teachers, the Messiah, son of God, the most complex person ever, most interesting individual ever, the most unique one ever, full of grace and full of truth, the son of God. And they are called to be with him as disciples. That is crazy. They drop their nets and they follow and they begin living strategically around how can I be more like my rabbi? How can I be more like Jesus? Jesus goes and he finds ordinary guys doing ordinary things and says, come on, I want you to be like me. Come with me. I'm going to make you into something. I'm going to make you into someone. Come on, I want to teach you how to catch others for my father's glory and for their good. Come on. And when Jesus does so, you know what those disciples hear? You know what those fishermen hear? I want you. There's, there's something about value that's there. They were castaways, low-lifers, bums. I want you. Man, I must be worth it. He, he wants me. Friend, the same is true today, and this is the call of the gospel for you. The real Jesus is telling the real you, I want you as you are. I want you just as you are. Don't worry about getting it all together first. I want you. He'll change you along the way. Don't worry about all this needed to be changed. There's a lot, okay, in both of us. Don't worry about that. You follow him. He's calling out to you. You've got all sorts of questions. He knows that. Just say yes. Drop your nets. Your nets being a metaphor for your plans, your agenda, the way you think things should go, your future. Drop your nets. Open your heart to Jesus and follow him. You've got a million reasons why you don't deserve God. You've got a million reasons why it doesn't make sense for Jesus to call out to you. But there's one reason why you respond and follow him, because he's calling out to you. And he will change you along the way. I will make you into fishers of men. I will do this, he says. 
And Simon and his brother and their friends, these four disciples, they follow Jesus. And Jesus changes them along the way. They didn't have it all figured out. They had questions. They had tons of questions. Don't worry about changing yourself. Friend, trust and follow Jesus. He'll change you if he wants to. He'll change you as he seems fit. You just follow him. Don't be consumed with trying to figure it all out first and have answers to all your questions. He will guide you in all truth. He will. Slowly, miraculously, these early disciples, these early fishermen, they do become much like their rabbi, and the world's never been the same since. And Jesus is still doing the same thing. He's calling, he's changing people, he's using ordinary people to change the world, to advance his kingdom, and to bring hope and change to other people. I want to prove it to you. I'm going to start by, I'm going to summarize Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up until today, May 23rd, 2021. Quick summary, because that's a lot of time. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is born. Jesus grew up. He was about his father's business there in the temple. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this crazy man, John, showing up, eating locusts and honey, has a leather belt and camel's hair for a jacket, and he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He baptizes Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness where he's tempted, tried, tested, and he resists perfectly, strong, poised. He exits the wilderness to discover that his buddy John had been arrested. His response, the time is now. The time is fulfilled. Hostility has begun. The cross is calling me. My father is directing me. Here we go. The very next step Jesus takes is calling the disciples, the men whom Jesus would train in order to form what is known as the Christian church. After three and a half years of leading discipleship training with these disciples, Jesus suffers and dies on a Roman cross. Three days later, he kills death, He comes back, he lays death in the grave, he beats it, he comes out alive. The redemptive work of Christ on the earth is finished. In fact, his word is to telestai. The Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus now falls upon and within the disciples, which is what we recognize today on Pentecost Sunday, which is today, the 50th day from Easter Sunday. These disciples were forefathers of the Christian faith, Peter, James, John. Andrew, Bartholomew. These were the first pastors of the Christian church. These young religious rejects, these ragtag groups of disciples of Jesus Christ, they begin to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And the Christian church is formed and fortified, built upon Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. These disciples and many others, they live for Jesus. They live on mission. They live lives of mission. And they fight tooth and nail to fight the drifts of the flesh. They fight tooth and nail to follow Jesus, to become just like Jesus, empowered even by his very spirit. And they make extreme sacrifices to obey Jesus and make disciples, giving their lives to torture and a martyr's death. They make disciples. They reproduce their faith in the gospel and the other's lives under very extreme persecution, quickly, the gospel spreads all around the Holy Land. The gospel spreads all around the Middle East. The gospel makes its way into India, into Spain, into the rest of Europe and Africa. Much later, the gospel makes its way into the Americas. 
In the southeast United States, the gospel lands in the Piedmont region of North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, up and down the Florida coast. The gospel continues to spread. It goes north, it goes south, it goes east, it goes west. 100 years ago, the gospel changed the life of a young lady named Mary Ecklemeyer who lived in Miami, Florida. The gospel came upon her and saved her. The Holy Spirit filled her life and lived within her. And he began to change her as she became a disciple. For decades, she was faithful to follow Jesus. She was faithful to pursue him in scripture. She was faithful to serve in her local church. In the 1960s, she moved to Hialeah, uh, neighborhood of Florida. And with the blessing of her small independent church in Hialeah, Florida, Mary, a 70-year-old widow at this time, she began a Bible study to reach the teenagers of her city, specifically the Sharks. It was a gang back then that was prominent in her community. She was burdened by all the teens that were consumed with the sex, drugs, and rock and roll and gang violence. There was nothing fancy about this Bible study. They had a Bible in her living room, and they studied it. Bible study, okay? Before Lifeway, they existed. You would open it and study it. Somehow, an 18-year-old boy by the name of Chris Johnson was invited to this Bible study, and he was radically saved by the power of God. Young Chris and elderly Mary begin to invite others to attend this Bible study, just out on their sidewalks, inviting these teenagers as they would pass by. They, they wanted to tell them about Jesus. Along the way comes a 17-year-old young man, Gary Michael Cuccio, an Italian refugee, a short gang member. He was invited in. He was a very rough young man, a gang member and a, and a standout football player. Cuccio was invited to Miss Mary Ecklemeyer's Bible study by Chris Johnson. In May of 1971, during this 50 years ago, right? Yeah. During one of Mary's Bible studies, Gary Cuccio became a follower of Jesus Christ. He became a disciple. He got saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit filled his life and made him into a disciple. In the fall of that year, 1971, he ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to play football at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Gary did what Mary did. He started a Bible study in his dorm, much like in her living room. It's there that Clint Petty from Virginia, Tommy Harris from Georgia, they got saved in his dorm room. All these were football players. These three then begin to invite others to this Bible study. During a practice during the fall of 1971, linebacker Gary collided with a young man named George who was an offensive tackle from North Carolina. George nearly loses his eye. He had seven stitches above his eye, and he had a fractured sternum. George knew Gary. He knew Clint. He knew Tommy. He knew about the Bible study. He'd been invited many, many times. He just never went. He wasn't interested. George knew that Gary never shut up about Jesus. He knew that Gary would read his Bible every second he had a chance. This is his testimony about it. And he had an extra Bible kept in his locker there at the field house so that he could read it even before and after practice. George said that he had no idea how Gary passed any classes because he was always reading the Bible or talking to somebody about the Bible, about Jesus. Later that day, after practice, after that big collision, Gary goes and visits George in the hospital. He apologizes for the hit. He meant nothing intentional. They're teammates after all. He feels terrible about it. In the hospital, testimony goes like this. George was asked by Gary. Gary said, have you ever really gotten to know Jesus? 
George said, yeah, I guess. Gary asked, have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit? George said, well, sort of. Gary asked, have you ever been filled with the Holy Spirit? George said, I, I don't guess so. Gary leaned in, said, before I leave, can I share some scripture with you? George said, sure. And it's right there that George began to become a disciple. Later that fall, George professed his faith in Jesus. He begins to share with everybody that Jesus loves him and that Jesus loves them. He starts street preaching. He preaches Jesus even to this day. He was handing out gospel tracts. He started dating a young lady. Within a few weeks, she gets radically saved. They get married. They graduate. They head off to seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. They've since raised three children and have pastored and shared Jesus to tens of thousands of people around the world. I met Jesus through the influence of, of these two people, George and Nedra. They're my parents. I'm in this warehouse today with you telling you about Jesus, preaching from Scripture in a large part because a hundred years ago, Jesus called out to a little girl named Mary, and he saved her. And she became a disciple. She became a follower of Jesus. She followed him through insecurity, through fear, through ignorance. She followed him. And then back in 1970, at the age of 70, she was bold enough, brave enough, courageous enough, obedient enough to start making disciples of Jesus, who made disciples of Jesus, to open her living room to gang members. A seven-year-old woman in Florida has very little in common with a gang member who's 17 in Florida. That didn't matter. They both had sin in common. They both needed a savior, and she brought them to Jesus. She showed them Jesus. Friend, if God can do something through a 70-year-old widow with an old Bible and a living room, if he can do something through an insecure 17-year-old punk named Clint or an 18-year-old gang member like Gary or a college football player like my dad, a dad trying to figure things out, if he can do something through a church planner, then he can certainly, certainly use you without question. Don't look at Simon and Andrew, James and John, and think that, that they're like varsity level and place yourself as JV like you're a lower class disciple who's prone to more sin and who has less potential. That's not true. Y'all, the, the disciples, it's all through the gospels. Clumsy, ignorant, foolish. They're all over the place. Like, remember, at the ascension of Jesus, they saw him alive for 40 days and he begins to ascend. As he's miraculously floating out of sight, it tells us in the Gospels, some of the disciples still doubted. Really? There's room for you, my friend. There's room for me. There is no varsity, junior varsity Christianity. There's clumsy Christians who fell forward towards the cross. That's it. A healthy disciple is a clumsy disciple who stumbles all the time, who gets overwhelmed in the drift all the time, but continues to get up and fail forward and fall forward and stride forward. 
That is a faithful disciple. It's not one who's strutting. It's one who's stumbling. They fight the drift. They get caught in the drift. But they know how to fail forward. So long as forward is towards the cross. So friend, I, I want to encourage you to lay aside your small dreams. You know, comfort, money, popularity. Let's lay that aside. Let's lay aside our selfish agendas. Let's lay aside all the, what I would consider worldly ambition. And let's just follow Jesus. You've got a few years left before you're standing before God. That's it. You've got a few years in the big picture. Follow Jesus with every year that you have left. Give God a blank check, signing your life on it, and give it to him. All the other details will be taken care of along the way. Like Matthew 6, says, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. We'll work through the details later. You seek the kingdom of God. You run after his righteousness. Don't worry about this other stuff. This other stuff is going to slow you down. This other stuff is going to cause you to drift further than where, you're, where you needed to drift. You see, at the heart of this call to follow Jesus is a call for you to orient your life less around the American dream of increased income and more comfort. It's, it's to reorient your life less around that and more around the gospel call to deny yourself, drop your nets, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus, this doesn't come as an add-on to your dreams and plans. The call to follow Jesus is your dream. The call, the call to follow Jesus is your plan. And if you could see things 100 years from now, you would see it and believe it and run after it like this world had nothing to offer you. Everything else is details. Everything else can be sorted out later. You run hard after Christ. Come, follow me. It's not a suggestion. He doesn't say, come as you think about it, and if you want to, I'll be over here. That's not a real Jesus. That's a popular Jesus, but that's not the real Jesus. He says, come, you follow me. You come be like me. Well, it doesn't really fit my schedule. Drop your schedule. Come on. I'm your schedule. Friend, following this Jesus wholeheartedly, this is where your happiness is found. This is where true comfort is found. This is where contentment is found. Happiness, I'm convinced, is found in pursuing Jesus in the word of God, in fighting the drift faithfully, in pursuing holiness, godliness, virtue, in praying over all sorts of things, from parking spots to discounts to coupons, praying over everything, practicing regular, ongoing repentance early and often, seeking forgiveness even if you weren't the one that offended, seeking reconciliation even if it wasn't your fault, loving the overlooked, living your life as a selfless missionary, seeking the way of humility. This is where your happiness is found. This is nowhere popular in the world today. This is going completely against what is popular. But this is the normal Christian life. Living this way is normal. This is average Christianity. This is normal Christianity. This is ordinary for Jesus, ordinary for his disciples. Don't, don't look at the rest of the New Testament and think, man, they were intense and think that there's room for us to be something other than intense. This is Christianity. 
I don't know what we're doing in the world today, but it looks very little like this. Because we've adopted the idea of a disciple without the lifestyle of the disciple. Without the necessary humility to deny ourselves. Everywhere you go, you're told not to deny yourself. It's unhealthy to deny yourself. Psychologically dangerous to deny yourself. It's really hard to follow Jesus with the narrative that's in and around us today. The quote has been met, though, a long time ago for professing Christians who don't live the Christian life. People who call themselves Christians, yet they don't drop their net. They don't drop all things and follow him. So, family, my, my ask is that you would pursue Jesus like a kid with an adventurous spirit, caring less about what other people think, that you would follow Christ in authentic discipleship where you lose your identity in his. You lose your notoriety. You, you lose your name and you adopt his. I mean, they, the early Christians, right? They were called Christians in a little town called Antioch because they were trying to be so much like Christ. It was a name given to them from outside the Christian community. As they observed these religious crazies following this guy that beat death, they're like, you're just a Christian. And it stuck. And now we use the word Christian and we don't earn it. They earned it. They caught it from culture looking in at them. Today we've earned something, but it's called hypocrite. That's a sermon for another time. But here's my prayer for us is that we would all, every one of us, that we would burn with a deep-seated passion for God and his glory, that we would burn for this, that our hearts would learn to yearn, yearn to have a passion for God and his glory above all other things, and the top of the list is our comfort, that we would burn this way, that we would follow Jesus with, with a passion and follow his, his teachings, whether it makes sense or not, that we just do what he says that we would stay low, that we would get low, we would be humble. The way of the disciple is crawling. It's not strutting. It's on your hands and knees, crawling in brokenness and humility. That is the posture of the Christian. My prayer is that we would make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That Mary could talk to Clint, that Clint could talk to Gary, that Gary could talk to my dad, that my dad would talk to me, and that I could talk to you. Who are you going to talk to? How, let's not stop this. You go and talk to others, and you can tell them about Mary. Because part of what she did is an encouragement to you. You don't know who she is. You'll thank her one day. Jesus shows up after 40 days in the wilderness being tormented by Satan, not eating food, he comes out of the wilderness preaching good news. He comes out of that wilderness slinging it. He says, repent of your sin, not someone else's. You, you got enough. We've got logs hanging out. Let's, they'll take care of that speck later. Let's repent of our sin. He says, believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Believe that Jesus did all that was necessary. Believe in the Messiah as Savior, and you follow Jesus as your master, your controller, 
your Lord. This is the way of happiness. Here is contentment. All across the world this morning, men and women, boys and girls are fighting depression. They're fighting loneliness. They're fighting uncertainty. People in this very room are tormented by panic, anxiety, fear, addiction. Unhappiness is everywhere. Very few people are satisfied and content and happy. Now more than ever, may we look to Jesus for this lasting, abiding happiness, this enduring contentment that the world sure can't give us. And let's look to Jesus for this inner peace, this settling of our spirit and poise with our wits. Friend, this is the way. Daily, moment by moment, repenting of your sin, believing Jesus, following Christ as the controller of your life, submitting to him as the game caller for your whole existence. Come to him. He will change you. He will make you a fisher of men. He'll make you an influencer for his kingdom, an ambassador for his kingdom. He will make you a representative for him. He'll do the changing. You trust him. He's provided the way. You just follow him. And remember, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of your works that you've done so that you wouldn't later brag or boast about it. But you are his workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And we experience this grace and this faith because of what Christ Jesus has done for us through his perfect life, through his sacrificial substitutionary death on our behalf, and his radical resurrection from the dead. And friend, this is what we turn our hearts and our minds toward now in communion. We only come to the Lord's table this morning because of what Jesus did, how he came to us. He lived perfectly as us. He came to die for us so that you and I can be forgiven, so that we can experience life forever, to identify with him, to re-identify us in him. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Believe it. Believe him. Repent of your sin. Believe and trust him as your Savior. Follow him as your master, as your controller, as your Lord. Christian, during this time, I ask that you remind yourself of the gospel right now. Right now. Remind yourself of the gospel. In other words, pretend the gospel is not true and that you're dead in your sin hopeless, facing the very judgment of God for your sin. And then tell yourself what Jesus did for you. Tell yourself that. Let's do this every time we come to the Lord's table. Where we ponder, we dwell, we think upon the finished work of Jesus. Don't drift through this time. We do it every week. Don't let it become routine. Engage. Jesus said, remember, recall. Ponder the gospel this morning as we come to the table. We've got juice and wine, which is symbolic of the death of Christ. We've got bread that you're going to take and dip into the juice of the wine. The bread symbolic of the perfect life of Jesus. You're going to come and take and dip. For those who don't prefer that, we've also got sealed communion cups with a wafer on top. We're going to have servers on either side here. We've got a self-station over here on that side of the room. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again.
Thanks be to our God, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. May the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit be upon this time of pondering and remembering. This time of communion. And Father, Son, and Spirit, would you remain with us always, even to the end of the age. You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.